And welcome to the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. X-Ray. Or maybe it's the Beervana Show and Podcast, as our new logo says. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we're joining you from our respective homes. Hi, Jeff. How's hey, life Patrick. over in your part of the world? It is, uh, well, we've had quite a week here, so... Um, there are a lot of tree branches down and even a tree or two. Uh, yeah. yeah. We had a weird st- storm. Weird because, you know, we do get snow from time to time in Portland, but usually not this late in the year. Usually if it's going to come, it comes sort of mid to late December or early January. But we had a big snowstorm come in, what was it, Friday? Last Friday, we, uh, a week ago from the time we were recording this. That's right. So about like Friday, February 12th or something. Uh, and it was wonderful. On Saturday, uh, got my old cross-country skis out, skied out the front door all the way around the neighborhood, through the parks, over the golf course, everything. It was big fun. And then Sunday came and uh, lost my power. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sunday came and then the rain turned to ice, which is a, a, a weird phenomenon that we get in the Northwest, which is ice storms. Yep. And it, and it will uh, it will glaze the surfaces um, of, you know, quite can be quite thick. And in this case, I think it was probably maybe a half an inch. I, I saw in one tree where it was quite thick where there was a lot of surface area. Yeah, it did build up. Um, and it really and it was really bad. So it brought all that weight, brought a bunch of limbs down. And despite the fact that Texas is getting all the attention, we had a quarter of a million people without power for a few days, including you. Including including me. And uh, it was a it was a you know, it was a neighborhood wide power outage. And there's a little substation around, so I suspect that was part of partly involved as well. Uh, but the other problem was that um, the you know the local cell towers I guess need power as well and so we didn't have any um, any cell phone data any internet any power nothing uh, which was you know in this connected world really really makes you feel like you're <laughs> you've been plunged into the dark ages of like 1992 or something <laughs> I know it's so weird you probably would rather have had uh, Wi-Fi <laughs> than than power uh, we our, our lives are so lived online. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I was out of power for two, two, three days, something like that. Anyway, I was out of power on Monday, which is the important thing because I actually had two classes to teach on Monday, and and for an entirely different reason, I had pre-recorded my lectures for those days, um, and it just so happened that those were in the bag, so I was able to not panic on Monday when I couldn't get online and I couldn't get anywhere, and even even uh, uh, there's still a fair amount of snow, so it's hard to get your car out and in places. So, uh, so that was good. Uh, but now we're now we're back into sort of more Oregony things. There's there's traces of snow around, but uh, we're back to the gray and rainy, forty six degree kind of days. Right back yeah. to normal February. Uh, it did, however, uh, and I'll kind of jump quickly, I suppose, because this is slightly relevant. It gave me a lot of time to sit and read, uh, and one of the things I did was finish uh, uh, the book that we're going to be talking uh, to the author of. Did I get that right? construction sentence construction the the author the author of which uh, we shall be speaking to <laughs> um yeah i'm not sure either of those were the best writing i've ever heard but that's correct <laughs> uh anyway uh, you are jeff allworth i am uh, speaking of beer books uh you've written a few books too beer bible is one secrets of the master brewers is another the Woodmer way is a third uh, and uh, the Beer Bible Volume 2. No, what is it? Beer Bible 2? Beer Bible... It's, it's just the Beer Bible, but it's the second edition. Oh, okay. 
uh, uh, <laughs> the uh, beer Bible, full, comma the B sides, f- fully revised, updated, and expanded. Nice. Yes. Uh, and so that's that's in the works. Indeed, and you are Patrick Munro Emerson of uh, the Economics Department at our Oregon State University. Indeed, Go Beavs. Um, Go Beavs. As, you, as you just sort of hinted at, you are uh, now teaching classes, uh, but. Not in person, still. No, uh, remotely from my from my elder son's bedroom. Uh, become comes all the wisdom that you would normally get in person. You get online. Yeah. Anyway, enough about me. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about uh, beer. So uh, today we have a very special guest, as I alluded to uh, before, uh, Chicago Tribune reporter Josh Knoll. Josh has been writing about beer for the Trib since 2009, and in 2018 published one of the most deeply reported books ever written on the beer industry, Barrel Aged Out and Selling Out. Uh, we'll talk about the book and get an update on what's happening with this, with its subject, AB InBev owned <laughs> Goose Island, as well as discussing beer more generally, uh, and as well as what it's like to be one of the few uh, working newspaper reporters covering the beer beat. And that's what I was alluding to. I was able to finish that book during my blackout. And it is a fantastic book. We'll have time to talk about this and talk about, but I wanted to sort of plug this before we before we even get going. Uh, you, in a few podcasts ago, you mentioned it. It came up again. And I said, oh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy it. And I did. Uh, and I started to read it. And it's really engaging, uh, extremely well-written and uh, well-researched and easy to read. Um, and it's quite a, it's quite a tale. So it really, it really draws you in. Um, yeah. it's like, it's probably, uh, the only beer book I've ever read that doesn't totally suck. So, um, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first, it's the first beer book I've ever read that, that I actually stayed interested in. I, I would take offense, except I know you've never read my book, so it's fine. I think you knew that one was coming. I was trying. Yeah, to, I was I trying did. to just try to subtly get that jab in, but uh, no. Your books are fantastic. You're also an excellent writer, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, and um, uh, I'm really looking forward. But seriously, it is an it is a really entertaining book. And I, when I heard that you'd done that, and we we're going to try to track Josh down, I started rereading. I was just going to skim it, um, you know, so I would be fresh. We talked to him, and I found it so interesting. I read the whole thing again, and I, that vanishingly few books have I read more than once uh, in the beer sphere. So yeah, yeah so if you're a craft beer fan, you have interest in um, in not only craft beer but also the way that the business has evolved and how craft beer has sort of come out. This is this is sort of essential reading. So uh, go go seek it out. And it, and it has you know it came out a couple of years ago, but it's still totally current um in in terms of the lessons and the interest so uh it's not really out of date at all yeah and kind of where we're at in terms of big beer and craft brewing you know if that makes sense absolutely Um, yeah yeah, their attitude toward it all right so we'll get to josh uh quickly uh presently but (laughs) but first we need to talk about the news In an echo to uh, the deal our guest Josh wrote about, uh, Brooklyn Brewery sold its international brand rights in Europe and parts of Asia to a longtime collaborator Carlsberg for around $130 million last year, uh, although that was just reported recently. In the 2020 annual report, Carlsberg wrote, 
We have developed a close cooperation with this great New York craft brewer. In 2020, we further strengthened the collaboration when we acquired the rights to the Brooklyn brand in our markets. The deal will reduce complexity and increase profitability, supporting future growth of the brand. So that was interesting. It didn't get a lot of, I didn't see a lot of people talking about it, but I thought that was kind of an interesting um, modern way to handle all of this is to sell your rights abroad um, and for a pretty penny too. Yeah. And if, if uh, well, you know, but others who've traveled abroad, Brooklyn beer is one of those brands that does get around. You, you find Brooklyn beer in a lot of places in Europe. And uh, so it makes a lot of sense for them to to sort of try to ride that brand and expand it in Europe, I guess. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it is one of those things that is a probably quite a good collaboration in that Carlsberg has tried to keep their hand in the craft game and have their own craft brand. But I think it doesn't have the same kind of currency that, a, you know, an iconic American brand will have. So this, I'm sure it's going to be a lot easier to penetrate other markets with uh, the Brooklyn name. Yeah. And Brooklyn itself is just an iconic place and name. So it's just a, it's a win all around, I suppose. Uh, by the way, just to, not to step too too much on our own interview coming up, but one of the things that struck me when I was reading the, 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 um, the book is that how much craft brewing has changed in that sense in the early days. Uh, uh, Boston brewing and Brooklyn brewing uh, were were uh, uh, were oh, and Pete's Wicked at the time as well were all uh, contract brewers. They had their beer brewed elsewhere, um, and so mm-hmm. they were basically just a brand and a business. And uh, the actual brewing happened elsewhere, and that's just something that uh, it's it just doesn't happen as much anymore, does it? Yeah, and and it it's kind of surprising given that there's uh, excess capacity, and I think the stigma of of contract brewing is probably a lot lower now. Uh, you know, our friends at Rosenstadt do it that way, and I don't think they they suffer much at all. Uh, they put out a good product, and they're good guys, and people just like the beer. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, although that's sort of a local thing where they go and and brew at different people's places, right? Uh, more than like. Um... I've talked about my personal experience with Ithaca Beer Company in New York and how, you know, they started out having it brewed in Chicago, <laughs> maybe Goose Island. I don't know. I don't remember where they had it. Uh, so it was really just a, just a, you, you, you make beer for us and ship it, you know, a thousand miles or whatever. Yeah. I, th- I do think the, the business model matters. If you're trying to conquer the world and you contract brewing and you're calling yourself a brewery, that probably rubs people the wrong way in a different way. But, uh, um, but yeah. it, it is surprising to me. I mean, it, if you wanted to get into brewing right now, uh, I think you could probably set up contract arrangements pretty easily. And, um, you know, it's way cheaper to get into the market that way. Yep. Yep. Establish a brand and then get going. That's how Ithaca did it. Yeah. All right. Uh, since we're using the news feed to tee up our interview with Josh, why not another one? Uh, Anheuser-Busch announced recently that it would shift production of Stella Artois from Europe to four of its U.S. breweries. This is not a new tactic by ABI, which shifted production of Bex to the U.S. about a decade ago, yet it illustrates the problem of having a network of 12 breweries in a country in which you sell less and less beer every year. Uh, those 12 plants brew a lot of beer, Bud Light, Bex, Goose Island, Michelob Ultra, and soon Stella. So yeah, there's a ton of capacity in the U.S. It's heavy yeah. stuff. Uh, transporting it here and there is hard. I, I remember, uh, in fact, this came up in the book again. <laughs> you had to know that Bex... Bex was sued, uh, or AB was sued because they were brewing Bex in in U.S. but weren't. I think the thing was the bottle said something like Bavaria's best beer or something weird like that, right? And so people were like this is not Bavarian beer. 
Right. You can't uh, say that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's not from Bavaria, but yeah, something like that. And it talked about Germany's like best, Germany's yeah. best beer, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I think it, it, uh, in the book, and we don't really, uh, I don't think we're going to get into this into the real details of the book so much, but um, he, you know, Josh describes a lot about uh, Anheuser Busch's kind of dirty tricks, and there were a number of them. Um, so you know. All Anheuser-Busch does is make beer, and they're not—they're not, they're not uh, polluting uh, the the world or, or killing people. They're not, you know, arms dealers. But uh, but at the same time, they they are not all, always the pure as the driven snow company that they sometimes present themselves as. All right. Well, if you're not excited to listen to this uh, interview now, then there's really nothing else we can do. So why, why don't we uh, why don't we get right to it? Uh, and uh, get you to our interview with Josh. Yeah, and we should mention that at the end of the day, it was impossible for all three of us to be in the room together, so I interviewed Josh alone. That's why you don't hear Patrick. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of chaos having to do with weather-related schedule disruptions and stuff, so yep. uh, yeah, left it to my better half. We, we, we spoke beforehand, so I, was, I carried both of our thoughts together in the interview, which you can hear now. Josh Knoll writes about beer and travel for the Chicago Tribune. He started with the Trib in 2005 and picked up the Beer Beat in 2009. At that time, Chicago had just a handful of breweries, which places Josh in the front row for the explosion that turned the Windy City into one of the country's best beer cities. He also contributes to the Chicago Food Encyclopedia and Wrigley Field, an oral and narrative history of the home of the Chicago Cubs. Did I, did I get... Did I get that right? Is that accurate, Josh? Um, mostly. I actually, I guess I need to update my bio. I, I, I left travel writing and travel writing left me uh, a couple years ago now. That's not really something that's happening at the Tribune anymore. I was the paper's last full-time travel writer ever, which I'm sort of proud of, I guess. I'm glad I had that chance. Uh, but yeah, that job no longer exists, which is... Uh, I guess a metaphor for the entire newspaper industry at this point. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, we'll get to that. Um, welcome, uh, Josh. Thank you. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm writing about beer and, and the restaurant industry now, based okay. on Tribune, which is, uh, also keeps me plenty busy. Excellent. I think probably most of the people who will listen to this will know you from uh, your book, which we introduced at the top of the show, and uh, your your many columns and your presence on Twitter and your coverage of the beer industry. So probably no, no uh, big intro needed, but, but I think for the, for the world, we should hear how you pronounce your last name. Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. And it's never satisfying to anyone. It's, it's N O E L. So it could be Noel, could be Noel. I truly don't really care. I usually say, and a situation like this, Noel, just so people can visualize it. But I sort of prefer the way Noel sounds. So let's just go with Noel for these purposes. Well, let's get into this. We have a lot. I have a lot of questions, and you you have done a lot of interesting stuff, and I want to hear about them all. So let let's start with your background. Um, you write for one of the most uh, important newspapers in the country, and I assume since you're a reporter, you probably didn't start there. Uh, did you? What, what's your what's your background? Uh, so, well, thanks for asking. Because um, it is, it is you're right. I mean, no one just sort of wakes up and starts at the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Chicago Tribune or what have you. Um, and, and it's a journey that I think a lot of journalists are really proud of. 
so mine basically started, I, I, I basically flunked out of college because I was completely uninterested in it at the age of 19. Uh, <laughs> but I had been freelancing for, I went to high school in Tucson, Arizona. I was born in Chicago, went to high school in Tucson, started freelancing for the Tucson Citizen, which no longer exists, mm. uh, as a sports writer and was way more interested in that than I was in college. Uh, and so at the age of 19, when the University of Arizona said, you don't really need to come back, um, I did happen to have a bunch of sports writing clips and a small newspaper in the middle of Arizona uh, called the Casa Grande Dispatch. Uh, it was a little dusty town right off of I-10, which is the interstate connecting Tucson and Phoenix uh, and goes across the entire country. Um, the Casa Grande Dispatch was hiring a sports reporter, and I got that job at the age of 19. So I basically started my first, uh, or started my career at the age of, uh, got my first staff job at the age of 19, and uh, did that for a few years, did sports for a while, and then decided I didn't want to do sports anymore because sports are fun, but, you know, they're sports, they're games. Um, so I started, became, became a news writer and wrote about education. Uh, I did end up going back to college, graduated in my 20s from Loyola in Chicago because I still had those Chicago roots, worked at the Baton Rouge newspaper covering uh, crime and violence down there, yeah. which was very an interesting three years. Um, and then from Baton Rouge, took a job as a news writer at the Chicago Tribune, uh, bottom of the totem pole, wrote news and did, again, a lot of crime and violence stuff for the Tribune. <clears throat> and after three years, the travel writing job came open and it was, the Tribune had a really robust travel section at the time, one of the best in the nation. Uh, and I thought, who wouldn't want to be a travel writer? Cause I <laughs> position internally, uh, I'd never thought about being a travel writer, but I thought, well, that sounds kind of fun and like the chance to tell a lot of really interesting stories and have interesting experiences. Uh, and somewhat to my shock, I got the job because <laughs> that just it just sort of dovetailed with what I was becoming good at in my career, which was storytelling and narratives and things like that. I, I've always found that more interesting than freedom of information requests and drilling down into data and, you know, reams of paperwork. Um, I like to get out there and talk to people and have experiences and tell those stories and travel writing fit perfectly with that. Um, and while I was the travel writer, travel was under the same umbrella as food and dining broadly at the Tribune. Uh, under the, like, I think that the, the umbrella, I think they called it lifestyles or I can't even remember at this point, but the right. food and dining editor tapped me on the shoulder one day in 2009 and said, there's this craft beer thing is kind of becoming a thing here in Chicago. And he knew I had interest in it and some knowledge of it, not a ton, but a, a more than sort of the, I, I wasn't drinking Bud Light in 2009. We'll put it that way. I was interested in like the stuff that was percolating in Chicago and especially Goose Island. Cause they were, they were the big daddy around here. Uh, and he said, would you mind sort of keeping an eye on what's happening with beer and write a few beer stories for me every now and then when you're not traveling? Travel was still my first job, but it was just so writing about beer in Chicago uh, became sort of a secondary thing for me. Um, and slowly my job went from mostly travel and a little beer. It just the it, it flipped to 
more and more and more beer as Chicago went from, you know, I think there were fewer than 10 breweries here when I started and now there's close to 200. Uh, and it just, beer became a bigger and bigger and bigger part of my job as the industry became bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, newspapers have sort of taken it on the chin and the, the travel writing job, as I said at the beginning, uh, basically doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, so it was sort of a very natural transition for me over the course of about, uh, probably seven, eight years travel became travel and beer became beer and travel became beer and restaurants. So that's, that's the not so short version. <laughs> well, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I think the way newspapers work is mystifying to a lot of people. Uh, and, and one question I have with hearing that story is who guides that transition? Is that coming from the editors where they're saying cover more beer or it's just naturally happening as you're turning in uh, uh, different stories or is that, is that guided or does, was that more organic? Uh, it was pretty organic. Um, and really just the way the two things dovetailed the rise of craft beer as an industry and cultural force dovetailing with the Tribune having less and less money to spend on its travel department. They just sort of went hand in hand. So I, I guess I got really lucky in that way. So it was pretty organic. There were, you know, navigating that stuff with editors and personalities can be challenging at times. Um, travel editor wasn't always thrilled that I was spending my time writing about beer. He was somewhat supportive, somewhat frustrated. I completely get it. Uh, <laughs> but uh it, uh, yeah, I'd say end of the day is really pretty organic and just sort of what the paper needed. And it just, and it also happened to be what I was interested in. I, I just, I realized I loved traveling and writing about traveling, but I became so much more interested in the beer industry than the travel industry. Mm-hmm. And the travel industry is pretty interesting, or at least it was before, you know, we stopped traveling. Right. Um, <laughs> but the beer industry just, I found so much more interesting. Um, so it, it was organic, I guess, within the newsroom, but also for me personally. Well, let's shift gears and talk about beer then. And, uh, your, uh, involvement with Goose Island and and what led to this book. Um, I I assume that most people are aware of the book at the very least, um, if they haven't read it and I encourage them to, the, the, the reason we're talking two years later is, uh, after you've written the book is, is Patrick just read it and he was really excited about it. Uh, and we <laughs> ended up not being able to have him on the call, but, um, it, it, I, I reread it actually. Uh, and that puts you in an incredibly rare company of, uh, beer books. I read more than once. I am honored. I, yeah. I have reread it. I'm too scared to that, but that's just an author thing. No, it holds up incredibly well. That was one of the things that was the most impressive to me is that the story that you told, which for folks who haven't read it, it's it's kind of two halves. It's the the first half is the barrel aged stout, which is the story of Goose Island. The second half is the selling out, which is the acquisition by Anheuser Busch and and what what happened then. Um, but but the second half really becomes kind of a an, a dissection of the way big beer works and the way beer in in America works. And that is, you know, that, that transition was happening uh, following the, the 2011 sale to Goose Island, but it, it has become so much more a part of, a pre, you know, a presence of the craft brewing industry now that it, it really reads as a kind of prescient look forward. Um, but before we get to that, let's talk about 
you and Goose Island, like, where did this book come from? When did it start becoming a book in your head? Uh, it started becoming a book in my head about four minutes after the sale to Anheuser-Busch was announced. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes sense. I, I've been wanting to write a book about beer at that point. So this is all the way back in 2011. I'd been writing about beer for a couple of years. Craft beer was really, like I said before, becoming this cultural force and a really interesting one, you know, I mean, for better and for worse, uh, I would argue mostly for better. Um, and I, I wanted to write, you know, there are a lot of really good books out there about beer itself, uh, including by you. Um, but I felt like there wasn't really the deep dive into the sort of the development of that cultural force yet uh, and sort of the business of it. And Goose Island's sale to AB was obviously a, uh, a huge, or it felt like a huge, I shouldn't even say obviously, it was, it felt like a huge turning point, but it was sort of hard to pin down what exactly had happened when it happened. Um, and it's interesting reading the initial response to the deal, reading back people, what people wrote in their blogs at the time, because that's, that's what people did back then. Right. Um, and some people said, oh, this is the end of the world. Some people said, this is great for craft beer. And some people said, something big just happened, but I'm not sure what it is. And we're just going to have to wait and watch and see what it is. <clears throat> and so I was pretty sure that something important had happened and something relevant. So I reached out to John Hall, the founder of Goose Island. And I should mention that it's easy now, 10 years later, to uh, uh, sort of look past Goose Island to a degree as just sort of the AB brand and like the old school brand in Chicago. But they were just... Uh, hugely important as a brewery in Chicago and beyond uh, across the nation and really across the world. I, w I was in, where was I? I think I was in Finland back in 20, about 2010 or something. And, and, you know, at, at the, the good beer bar in Helsinki uh, <laughs> and look, was just looking around at what was available on, you know, they, they, they'll put the bottles up of what's available. And there was, and I was stunned to see Bourbon County stout there. Um, and it was like, wow, Goose Island is, they've got Goose Island. This is awesome. You know, I mean, back, <laughs> back then it was just, it was really just a special brewery and a special brand. They, they just made so many wonderful beers and so many different contexts, really approachable and easy drinking, you know, three, one, two, uh, they were early to dry hopping with IPA, believe it or not. Uh, they were doing Belgian styles, of course, bourbon barrel aging. So it's, you know, at, at the time of the sale, it was really meaningful. Yeah. Goose Island, a really special brewery, had sold to Anheuser-Busch. Anyway, so with all that said, I called up John Hall. I still remember I was, I, it took me a week or two or maybe even more to sort of summon the courage to tell him that I wanted to write a book about Goose Island. Um Partially because I guess I was, you know, no one wants rejection. Maybe I was afraid he'd say no or that's stupid or hell no. Um, but uh, and also because I I knew it would be a big undertaking, but I did it. And I remember I was standing in the park across the street from my house on a uh, it was a warmer day and just 
said, look, I want to write a book about this, the story of Goose Island. And I, I, at the time, I didn't know whether how the sale would factor into it. If it was, I, I guess I probably figured it, initially it was the end of the story. And, but the crazy thing is, is Anheuser-Busch kept buying breweries. So <laughs> telling a much broader story than just the Goose Island story. So that's why it sort of broke down the way it did with the first half of the book is the story of Goose Island and of craft beer in general and how it got to the point where a big company like Anheuser-Busch would want to start buying up breweries. But yeah, it started as a pretty small story, the story of Goose Island. Yeah. When I started working on the book, I saw it as a, a smaller story, the story of Goose Island, but it wound up telling the much broader story. So it, it really, it, it changed in real time while I was reporting it out and, and writing it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I So I assume, uh, was your process just doing, I, I looked at the back of the book and you, you, you did a million interviews. So were you in those first years, just, just gathering the, doing the reporting and gathering the information and interviewing folks? Yep. Yep, exactly. I, you know, I sat down with John Hall, the founder, a dozen times, you know, and each interview probably lasted two to three hours, you know, generally. Uh, his son, Greg Hall, was the brewmaster for 20-ish years. Uh, I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, and then I would just try to talk to, like any reporter would, as many people as I could from as many corners of the brewery as I could. People there, people who are no longer there, people who needed to be off the record, but were happy to talk about it. And, you know, a lot of people had a lot of feelings about the sale. Uh, and a lot of people who worked there had a lot of pride about their time there. Because, again, Goose was just this really uh, important and exciting brewery for a long time. Um, you know, whether they're still that, I think, is would be up to some debate. But in 20... 11 at the time of the sale. And even for a few years after, I mean, it was really pretty undeniable. Uh, but yeah, just kept talking to people and, and gathering as much uh, information as I could and trying to track sales, you know, through whatever channels I could and getting people to give me old PowerPoints and, you know, just stuff like that and trying to just build characters and scenes and uh, and then the, the wild part, like I said, was Anheuser-Busch kept buying breweries. So I, the story, I could, it got a little unsettling because I could tell that the story was getting bigger and bigger, but I didn't sort of understand completely what it was and certainly didn't understand what the end of the story was. Yeah. So th that's yeah, but, amazing. Yeah. Generally came into, into view. It, it. The, the 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 story you've written is in, is it's very elegantly designed uh, as a narrative the the two halves structure where you tell you basically tell the story of craft beer in in its kind of romantic phase and then the the business of beer which is not a story of craft beer it's it's, it's a much larger more integrated story and involves not just the United States but because Anheuser-Busch was involved and involves Brazilians and Belgians and, you know, it involves, it's, it's a world story. When did you begin to see the Goose Island? I mean, you, you, you've mentioned that they kept buying breweries, but when did you begin to see this, this kind of prism of Goose Island as a metaphor for craft brewing in this larger world and, and come up with this structure? Mm. That's a good question. What I can't, and it's hard to remember now, um, it's such a process, uh, just to, it's 
takes over your life. It's like having another child. Uh, <laughs> I remember initially I, I envisioned my book proposal pegged it as 12 chapters. It wound up being 30 chapters. Mm. Um, it just morphed over time um, as the story. I can't, I, I honestly can't remember a lot of the details about how it came together, but I can tell you that it just, it came to like, it, it went from 12 to 30. And then of the 30, 15 chapters are barrel aged stout, which is goose Island and the metaphor of craft beer before 2011. Um, and then part two selling out another 15 chapters about Goose Island and the post sale and the sale itself and why the sale happened and how it happened and why Anheuser-Busch kept buying breweries and what Miller and Constellation did. Um, it just, it, it just, it, it, it happened just really naturally. It just, it just, yeah. it needed time. I remember I was, supposed to turn the book in six months sooner than I did. And I was getting really nervous because, and my agent was like, you got to just finish this book. And I told her, I said, I don't know what the end of the book is. I don't have the ending. And then magically the publisher reached out to me and said, Hey, our release schedule for the fall is looking crowded. Do you mind, would you want an extra six months to work on the book? And we'll push the release back six months. And I said, oh, I think I played it cool. But, you know, I said, <laughs> like, well, if that works for you, then I guess I could do that. When, in fact, I was on my knees praising the Lord for uh, getting me that extra six months. And during that six months, um, AB bought Wicked Weed which was the 10th brewery it bought. Goose Island was first. Wicked Weed in North Carolina was the 10th. So between 2011 and 20, gosh, what year was the Wicked Weed sale? I want to say 2017. Um, uh, yeah, I just read that too. And yeah, 2016 or 2017. I can't remember what you wrote, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think 17. But uh, anyway, in those six months, the Wicked Weed sale happened. And that felt like a period on the sentence. At that point, it really, and AB even said, we're pretty much done buying breweries now um so it's just, it got, i just needed it, time for it all to sort itself out and fortunately i got it and it just sort of i you know i just kept thinking and struggling and trying to figure out how to tell the story and you just keep chipping away at it and you, you figure it out yeah and it, it really was serendipitous because as you write in the book um not only was ab moving and shaking but it allowed other acquisitions, including Ballast Point and Lagunitas to happen. So you could right. see this trend happening, you know, industry wide. So that it, it, it is good that you didn't just knock this sucker out and have it, it to the publisher by 2014 or something or else, you know, it would, it would be a much different book and it wouldn't have that same kind of predictive or present look that I think that it has now. Yeah, no, I, I and on that, I think I just basically got lucky. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. The truth is, is I probably, the truth is, is I could really write another chapter now. Like I, I do feel like that story is basically, it is, is now finished. Um, like that era of M&A for craft breweries is pretty much done, which isn't to say there won't be other sales, but what was happening between and it didn't even, it started with Goose Island, but it really picked up steam. And I want to say about 24, 14, 2014, 15, 16, 17, like when you had those, const, uh, the Lagunitas and the Ballast Point deal 
and AB buying breweries left and right. They announced two deals in like three days at one point. Yeah. Uh, Four Peaks and Breckenridge. And it was just like, what is going on here? And now, of course, it's all hard seltzer and organic hemp kombucha and whatever is going on. Hazy this and that and blah. Uh, but that, that I, I could definitely do one more chapter to sort of really put the, put the bow on it. But the timing did work out uh, where things were sort of winding down as the publisher finally pulled the book from my hand and sent it off into the, into the universe. Well, what would that chapter be? What, what more would you say to add to the story if you were telling it, uh, you know, if, if they gave you a second edition? Um, well, hopefully the publisher is listening right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, it would be, there's a little more perspective on what AB was trying to do. Uh, there is the fact that AB is now the largest craft beer company in the United States. I mean, that was what they were, they were pretty obviously were trying to do. And just in the last year or so, they have done it. Uh, and I, I, that, that really is the cherry on the, the Sunday that began with the Goose Island sale in 2011. But it's also, you know, AB, I guess, did it well, quote unquote, uh, whereas the Constellation acquisition of uh, Ballast Point was an absolute disaster. Uh, it's sort of the other side of the coin. Uh, Heineken's acquisition of Lagunitas probably leaves a lot to be desired in some corners of the Heineken boardroom. You know, we I think there's just there's perspective now on that era of craft beer M and A, which uh, gives us a little more understanding into what Anheuser Busch's plan was, how it has impacted the craft beer. <clears throat> landscape and uh, how others didn't really do it well. And the fallout right. of that, I guess, as well. So would you evaluate, looking back at uh, Anheuser-Busch's approach, do you think it was successful? Um, they, they're selling a lot of craft beer, but um, what would you evaluate, how would you evaluate that looking back now with a couple more years? Yeah, I mean, they they... Anheuser-Busch did what Anheuser-Busch does. They became the biggest, like I said, craft beer company in the country. Uh, well, in the world, really. Um, and they do it the way that they do things, which is not always with the most transparency. Um, uh, you know, I think there are costs to that and, and benefits. But yeah, from Anheuser-Busch's perspective, they... I think they, they achieved what they, they wanted to. One thing that's really changed or continued to accelerate, you touched on this, but it, but it's become a, a much bigger, although kind of maybe underreported story in the industry is, is the, the story with distribution. Um, how, in your reporting since the book has come out, how has that impacted uh, Anheuser-Busch and just the industry in general? Um, it was a, it's a really big story with, with Goose Island's own, uh, story, you know, even before, before this, but now we've got a lot more breweries in the country and, uh, you know, fewer distributors. And what, what, what have you been seeing on that side? With regard to distribution? Yeah. Well, that was sort of the, that was, I think when I started the book, the part that I probably knew the least about, um, mm -hmm. and didn't really know that I needed to know, but, you know, you got to, stay open-minded and keep hunting and trying to figure stuff out. And as the story unfolded, it 
really dawned on me that distribution was the whole, really what this was all about. Um, and when the sale happened, the Goose Island sale, Anheuser-Busch's CEO at the time, Dave Peacock, who was a lifelong AB guy and sort of helped merge uh, Anheuser-Busch with InBev as it became Anheuser-Busch InBev. He was sort of the guy I think that the Brazilians felt they could work with. And he sort of helped nurture the those two companies to become one, which we now know is Anheuser-Busch InBev. Uh-huh. He said that he talked about needing, he was very honest, but, but spoke in a way that I think a lot of consumers didn't really get. And I, even I didn't get, cause I was still pretty new in my beer writing career, but he talked about needing to get these craft beers to their distributors. Uh, Anheuser-Busch is a beer company, but it is also as much as that or more a dis- It is a distribution network. Uh, that is the power of Anheuser-Busch. It can, you know, it can trot out some new beer and get it to every convenience store in all 50 states in a matter of weeks if it wants to, which is, that is the power of that company. Um, and it, he said at the time of the sale that we, basically we need to get a, a craft, we need to get like an IPA or a wheat ale, or I don't remember if there's an exact example, but we need to get these craft beers to our distributors. We need to plug these beers into our distribution network. And I didn't fully, I think, get what he meant at the time, but over time it became clear that if they didn't plug those holes with their own craft beer, which Goose Island became, then the the distributors were going to start plugging those holes with uh, brands they didn't own, and they didn't want that to happen. Um, so it was really about satisfying the needs of distributors. That was really the whole impetus of the Goose Island sale. Uh, I mean, there were other things too. I think, you know, Goose Island legitimately, Anheuser-Busch legitimately struggled with innovation. Goose Island was brilliant at innovation. That was what Goose Island did. That's what the best craft breweries did and do, right? Um, so there were like secondary benefits as well, but really it was about getting getting beer on those distribution trucks. Um, and it's continued to be the case. Uh, funny enough, AB sort of screwed a lot up with Goose Island, um, which, but they learned from it. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing. They knew they didn't really know what they were doing with that owning that craft brand. They did a lot of things wrong. But they applied, they learned from what they did wrong and they applied the knowledge to other brands. And now Goose Island IPA, which was a rocket ship under AB, uh, is is very much a second tier IPA in that that distribution system. And now Elysian IPA has surpassed it and by a lot. Um, so distribution is still the name of the game. It's just they're, you know, a, by buying 10 and then they bought an 11th brewery, I think it was last year, an Ohio brewery. Because it, you know, became very much a regional strategy. Uh, and Ohio has a lot of people, a lot of beer drinkers. Um, it, um, it just, it became about uh, it, distribution. Still, really at the heart of what it is. And Goose Island granted a lot of education, but it, it ended up getting applied to 
the broader strategy, which now includes what, 17 breweries, I want to say, including like Red Hook and Widmer out your way. You know a right. thing or two about Widmer, I do believe. Uh, <laughs> True. Uh, with the the craft brew alliance and Kona and all that, so it's yeah, it's 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 all about satisfying distributors and filling slots on trucks, filling shelf space, and they craft is what fifteen percent of the market right now, and AB wants its chunk. That's how it operates. So well, what you know, one of the nice uh, met, uh, themes, I guess that that you follow through the book is the. The, the kind of the concept of authenticity and this the the nature of craft beer as a as a local place uh you know all all those kind of hallmarks of craft that we we've been talking about for decades in the last two years how has that continued to evolve as chicago's gotten more and more breweries uh with goose island what how's goose island doing now in that environment that's a good question um i think the answer is not great uh it was very not great for a while. Um, they were sort of stuck in like the 2011 way of doing things. Um, they didn't even <laughs> prepare to be shocked. They didn't even have a canning line. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, Goose Island was just losing share like crazy in Chicago as you know, we've, we've got a lot of really really good and really exciting breweries here. It's a big, small, medium, and big. Uh, and Goose was just getting, you know, waxed by in all directions, pretty much. Uh, they got this really smart, savvy guy to be their <clears throat> new general manager. Um, he actually was Greg Hall's best friend growing up and mm-hmm. worked at Goose Island when it was a brew pub way back in, nothing more than a brew pub in 1988, 89. Uh, his name's Todd Osman. He was with Goose for a long time. Uh, and AB identified him as someone they liked and wanted to sort of nurture. And so he, be, he started to run uh, Blue Point, which was the second brewery, a craft brewery AB bought in this string of acquisitions. Uh, Blue Point's on Long Island in New York. And after a few years there, he came back and started to run Goose Island. Um, and he did things like he put a canning line in. Uh, he just wanted to make the brewery a lot more nimble, a lot more modern. Uh, they're putting out their new hazy IPA this week. Uh-huh. Uh, so Goose is, I think it seems like they're doing a little better. They're a great marketing brewery. Uh, they're really good at that stuff. Um, but I think they, they lost some, some, some mind share and share of mouth or throat or whatever they say in the industry man is struggling to bring it back. So that's sort of a not concise way of saying that goose Island is not, does not mean to Chicago what it once did by any stretch. Uh, some of that is self-inflicted. Uh, I would love to get in the, uh, the, the, the alternate time machine and know what goose Island would mean to the city if it hadn't been sold. I'm not, I'm not you know, <laughs> saying I, I wish it hadn't been sold. I, I don't care. I'm glad it was sold. I got an interesting story out of it. Uh, but it would be really interesting to know if it had stayed locally owned and family owned uh, with Greg Hall running the show as one of the great tastemakers in craft beer uh, history, really, uh, what it would become now. But, um, you know, uh, it was sold, and I think there was some self-inflicted damage there. Uh, as it was trying to transition into being a, 
a local brewery, but also an international brewery. There are now Goose Island brew pubs all over the world, uh, which obviously wouldn't have happened without the sale. Um, And then on the other hand, it's just revolution brewing is really good here in Chicago. Uh, Half acre brewing is really good. Uh, There's a lot of really good breweries here. And so Goose Island doesn't enjoy the, 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 you know, the lack of uh, challenge that it once did. So it was going to be hard to compete anyway. But um, yeah, for a couple different reasons, it's just not sort of what it was. Bourbon County Stout still resonates, but th- that's not what it was either by any stretch. So it's just sort of right. going along as, you know, it's it's got its, its deep pockets and its benefactor, and it'll always be protected because of that. But it's just not what it was right well i know you have an important uh meeting to get to before long but but i want to talk to you about your 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 day job uh and working for the chicago tribune the number of reporters who have who cover the beer beat in the united states is vanishingly small (laughs) um and you know we learn a whole lot there's there's people like me out there who, who get who catch a story from time to time and do a little reporting, but um, you're a paid reporter, you're a trained reporter. Uh, it's an actual profession. It's an actual skill set. Um, and it produces stories like the one you told in your book. And I'm wondering, uh, there are, there are, there's a bunch of stuff swirling around the, the trib right now. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, what, what's the future for good reporting um, to hold these multi-billion-dollar companies, uh, you know, shine some sunlight on them from people who are actually paid to do that. What what do you see as the future going forward? Oh, it's hard to know. I mean, we're at a in the Tribune in particular is at a at an intersection right now where a company that is not known for investing in its newspapers that is known for wringing the cash out of its newspapers is in the process of buying us right now. Uh, what's that going to mean? Um, and, you know, let's make no mistake, when there are not newspapers watching, when there are not journalists watching, the powerful celebrate because they're not held to account. Um, and that's, it's yeah. it's tragic. I mean, the, you know, we could go on for another hour about the state of things in this country, but I mean, one for the scales to be anything even resembling fair, there needs to be uh, professional, credible uh, a set of skeptical eyes who know how to process information and keep an eye out and hold the powerful to account. And that's getting harder and harder. We see papers of all sizes struggling. Uh, that said, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times are showing Wall Street Journal, to, you know, to a degree. I mean, got my quibbles there, but uh, are showing that it, it can be done. It's just that some of that stuff is being lost at the local level, which is tragic because, unfortunately, we can't just count on government officials to uh, do their best. They need to uh, be held to their word. And we're, we're, in, we're in an intersection right now. Uh, here and, and farther afield, everywhere, all directions. What, what's it look like for you at the Trib? Um, are you uh, <laughs> are you going to have Maybe, a job? I don't know. Uh, I hope so. Um, 
I, you know, and I hope that it's a place that I want to be. I hope it's a place that wants me to be there. Um, I've, uh, found writing about the restaurant industry during COVID really and the beer industry, uh, really important, uh, and interesting. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of stories to tell and I want to keep telling them. I also want a newsroom that values its people and its product. And, you know, when you got people coming in trying to ring the cash out rather than putting the cash back in, that's cause for concern. But let's, uh, you know, we've unionized, the workers have a voice, we're trying to negotiate a contract. And I'm hopeful that that contract ensures a, uh, a newsroom with, you know, that's dedicated to, to, to doing what it does best. Um, yeah, I do too. And, 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 you know, it might be a good time for you as a, as a, a reporter covering this beat, because the next year or two is going to be incredibly interesting in terms of the restaurant industry, the beer industry. Um, what, you know, once COVID ends, the story is, exactly. is only halfway through. So um, maybe, maybe that, <laughs> maybe there's a little job scare yeah, there. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be hopeful and, I, and I'm, and I'm rooting for newspapers, large and small in all directions. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, uh, I want to let you get to that meeting that you have, uh, and I'll say goodbye before I do say goodbye. I want to tell you, I forgot to mention this off, off mic. Um, don't hang up when I say goodbye. Um, because uh, the I will sit here patiently and quietly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. And then, uh, thank you very much. And thank you so much for taking time to, uh, join us. You are on Twitter as hop notes. Is that what it is? I am yes, I am Hop Notes. Hop Notes on Twitter. If you read the book, you'll you'll see where I came up with it. It became sort of an inside joke with myself. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, are, is there anything else you'd like to plug before we head out? Uh, I would like to plug uh, wearing a mask and being patient and uh, everyone being safe and getting through this thing. And I will plug my next book, which I really want to. Uh, get out there in the world at some point. So hopefully that'll be a thing before too, too long. Oh, do you have, are you working on one? Yeah. I've been sort of chipping away at one. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to find, I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So I'm trying to uh, find the motivation to uh, really drill down. I am working on something. It is not beer related. I'll say that. Oh, fascinating. Well, that's an interesting tease. All right. Well, that's something to, to stay tuned for we will uh, now you've now you've mentioned it on this incredibly well listened podcast so everyone will hold you to uh, your word and and now i have and, to do it good exactly you have to do it now <laughs> all right, well, thanks for motivation uh perfect all right josh thank you so much and uh stay on the line as we say goodbye i will thank you jeff i appreciate you having me here it's good to talk to you Okay, we better wrap this thing up. It's already pretty long. So uh, yeah, <laughs> so a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you to uh, Kyle and Ron and Tom today for reaching out. Um, for, the, for the rest of you, please uh, do reach out. You can send us your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at Beervana Pod. 
Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics. Well, we didn't even have time to drink any beer. So I'll just uh, say you uh, 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 wish you um, well and say cheers without a drink. <laughs> and I will do the same. All right. Uh, cheers, Jeff. All right. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>